0: From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air. Today, we kick off a week-long series of some of our favorite music interviews from our archive. We'll begin with Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards, who was our guest in 2010. He'll tell us about co-founding the band, writing songs with Mick Jagger, and how things changed when the Stones became famous. Later, we'll hear my 2010 interview with Brian May, a founding member of Queen and its lead guitarist. May wrote one of the band's most famous songs, We Will Rock You. He'll tell the stories behind that song and Freddie Mercury's Bohemian Rhapsody. Two great rock guitarists coming up on Fresh Air. Today we begin a week-long series featuring a few of our favorite music interviews from our archive. Jay-Z, Lizzo, Roseanne Cash, Smokey Robinson, and Pete Seeger are just some of the people in the series. To start it off, we have the interview I recorded with Keith Richards, a founding member of the Rolling Stones who is still the band's guitarist. He co-wrote much of the Stones' classic repertoire with Mick Jagger, including Satisfaction, Let's Spend the Night Together, Get Off My Cloud, Gimme Shelter, Sympathy for the Devil, and Beast of Burden. A four-part BBC series about the Stones, with each episode focused on a different member of the band, has been showing this month on epics and is also streaming. I spoke with Keith Richards in 2010 after his autobiography, Life, was published. Keith Richards, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much for coming. Now, I remember when the Stones started to record, that in America, we were expected to pick a team. Who do you like best, the Stones or the Beatles? Mm, and, the
1: competition thing, yeah.
0: Yeah, and you write about, you know, what, when the Stones started getting going, that you didn't want to copy the Beatles, and you decided to be the anti-Beatles. So what did that mean in terms of your your music and your image? Well, uh,
1: you know, I, I think yeah, if you're talking image-wise, we, may, we probably did make a sort of decision to... Uh, Not be the fab four or anything. So there were different, uh, basically, differences between the bands. the 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 Beatles were basically a vocal band, you know. They all sang, and one song John would take the lead, another Paul, another George, and sometimes Ringo, right? But uh, our band set up totally differently, uh, with one front man, one lead singer, right. And, and and what I loved about it was that uh, there's an incredible difference in, in that way uh, between the Beatles and ourselves, but at the same time, we're there at the same time, and you know you're dealing with each other, you know, and uh, and it was a very very fruitful and uh, and great relationship between the Stones and the Beatles. It was very very friendly. The competition thing didn't come into it as far as we were concerned. You know?
0: You have a great story in your book about how you co-wrote... Well, how you got Satisfaction started. You (laughs) co-wrote the song with Mick Jagger, but you originated it and you didn't know you were doing it. (laughs) Can you...
1: I I, I wish all the songs could come this way, you know, whether you just dream of them and then the next morning, there they are, presented you. But Satisfaction was uh, that sort of miracle... uh, that took place. Uh, I had a, I had one of the first uh, little cassette players, you know, Narelco, whatever, the Philips, uh, the same thing, really. But uh, it was a fascinating little machine to me, cassette player, that you could actually just lay ideas down and, uh, you know, wherever you were. So I set the machine up and I put in a fresh tape. I go to bed as usual with my guitar. And uh, and I wake up the next morning. Uh, I see that the tape has run uh, to the very end. And I said, "Well, I didn't do anything." You know? I said, "Maybe I hit a button while I was asleep." You know. So I put it back to uh, the beginning and push play. And there, some sort of ghostly version is. Uh, <laughs> I can't get no that is thanks and so there's a whole verse of it I won't bore you with it all and, um, and after that there's uh, I don't know, 40 minutes of me snoring <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but there's the song and it's embryo and I actually dreamt the damn thing you know what I mean and I'm still waiting for another dream
0: Now, how did the line, I can't get no satisfaction, come to you at a time when you should have been having a lot of very satisfying, gratifying moments?
1: Um, (laughs) darling, I don't know. I dreamt it.
0: No, true. (laughs) Okay. I mean,
1: nobody's ever satisfied, right? And and it was just a phrase that uh, obviously, you know, was buzzing through the mind, um, and whether you could express anything or, it, or enlarge on that idea of, uh, because otherwise I can't get any satisfaction. It's kind of, you know, sort of moaning. But if you, then you can take it and, uh, and expand it, in which Mick did brilliantly. Um, you know, there it is. I mean, these things are all made out of just little sparks of ideas that come to you and, uh, and, you, and you're lucky to be around to grab them. And uh, and that, that's kind of basically the process of how we work.
0: Okay, so let's hear Satisfaction. This is the Rolling Stones. My guest is Keith Richards, and he's written a new autobiography called Life. <music> the Rolling Stones, and my guest is Keith Richards, and he's written his autobiography. It's called Life. Now, that cassette that you mentioned that y- you used to mm-hmm. write down the, the idea for satisfaction in the middle of the night that so oh, surprised yeah. you when you played it back in the morning, that cassette or one just like it uh, was also really helpful to you in coming up with a kind of transformative guitar sound. Would you describe how you would ...plug your acoustic guitar in motel rooms into... Uh, I'll a try. Yeah. I'll,
1: yes, no, there's a good question. You know, I'll try. Because there I am. I now have my hands on the best amplifiers in the world... ...and the best guitars. But I'm trying to translate another sound in my head... ...that I can't find through conventional means. Um... I was at the time, I, was finding, I, I always play a lot of acoustic guitar. And the cassette machine gave me, in those days, before they uh, had things on them called governors, which means that you could not overload the machinery. Uh, I would just shove the acoustic guitar and, and use basically, I would use the cassette player as, as an amplifier basically, uh, and overload the acoustic guitar so it becomes an electric guitar. But at the same time, you see, you still have that feel of an acoustic, which is totally different to an electric. So, And I'm still looking for the perfect uh, uh, example of this, but I'm going to keep going.
0: So what you would get is like an electrified acoustic guitar that was also distorted.
1: Exactly. You got it, Terry. You got it, that's it. I was trying to get the the quality and the touch that you can get from an acoustic guitar and then overload it and make it sound like an electric guitar. But at the same time, you have that original acoustic touch because, you know, this gets complicated because guitars are strange animals. <laughs> and, uh, but... Uh, there's a touch that you can get off an acoustic guitar that you'll never get off an electric. And so I was trying to figure how to electrify the acoustic feel and and, and still translate it. And so that was the, the name of the game. That was it.
0: Now, it was surprising enough to me to read how you did this in your motel room. But then reading how you did it also in the recording studio was fascinating. That You wanted that sound so much that you brought in yeah. the cassette machine and plugged your acoustic guitar into it.
1: Yes, I mean, I took these ideas, and we, um, the Stones, were in the studio, and we, we, we're all looking at it, and then it doesn't have what you had on the, uh, you know, on the original idea, and so finally, after many attempts to try and reproduce this sort of idea, uh, you know, with amplifiers and, you know, conventionally i think it was charlie Watts maybe uh or let's go back uh, to how you did it in the first place and work it from there you know which is why you got street fighting man and jumping jack flashes there are no electric guitars at all uh it's just overloaded acoustics and uh, i don't know i like that denseness of color of feel uh that you can get out of that and uh and it's an experiment I might take up again once they start making cassette machines again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, um, what do you think Jumpin' Jack Flash is a good illustration of what you're doing?
1: Yeah, yeah, and Street Fighting Man is probably another great example of it. Um,
0: Which one would you rather hear?
1: Uh, I, I love them both, honey. Don't ask me to cut the babies in half.
0: All right, so so we'll, we'll go with Jumpin' Jack Flash. Um. Yeah, go there.
1: <laughs> All right, yeah. <laughs>
0: So here's the Rolling Stones' Jumpin' Jack Flash, and uh, my um, um, guest Keith Richards playing the kind of uh, plugged-into-the-cassette-machine guitar that he was just describing. And he has a, an autobiography called Life. that you describe as anti-girl songs that the Stones did, like Stupid Girl, Under My Thumb, Out of Time, Yesterday's Papers. And this is where I've been so ambivalent about some of the Stones songs, like Under My Thumb. Under My Thumb is so catchy. I mean, I I think it's just like irresistibly, Mm. irresistible what's going on like melodically and rhythmically in there. And then, you know, I catch myself singing along and what am I singing, you know, like... About this girl who's like you know, under, got, under his it's, thumb, it's, and so, um, anyways, uh, uh, were you ever ambivalent about well, that? Let me try and concept? break in here, Terry. Oh, oh, hey, let thank you. me break in here yeah. and
1: say, um, <laughs> you can take it as uh, you know, male, female, right, uh, you know, or it's just people. I mean, it could be about a guy. It could have been, you know, this is just a guy thing. You know the. the probably you're actually under her thumb and you're just trying to fight back, you know, and uh, these are all sort of relationships and stuff and I, I wouldn't take it as uh, as any you know, sexism, I can't even go there, you know, but I don't think about it, um, I just think, you know, we know what some people are like and uh, and those things uh Happen anyway I didn't write the lyrics
0: (laughs) (laughs) Cut to the chase (laughs) 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 Off the hook (laughs) about your relationship with Mick Jagger. You grew up in the same neighborhood. Uh, mm-hmm. You've known him since you were a boy. Um, you were obviously very close for a long period of time, co-wrote so many songs together. But at the same time, um, you, you, you write about... Uh, about Wait, there's problems in, down the road. Yeah, yeah about how All in right. the beginning uh, of uh, the 80s... Let the me 18... preempt you. you yes, know? go ahead. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> you know, I mean, do uh, you, you think in a 50-year relationship doing this stuff that there's not going to be some conflict, some disagreements. Of course there's going to be. But, but you describe
0: book. him as having become unbearable in the early 80s. What, what
1: At times, yes. What, so what made I. him
0: unbearable in those times?
1: An attitude, uh, you know, it's all in the book, uh, and I don't want to expand on it with you, Terry. Uh what I've said is in the book. I, I, you know, I can't say anything more than that. Well, let, me quote something,
0: let me quote something that you say in the book. And this was, mm-hmm. you, you write how, you know, in, in the early 80s, this is right after you had kicked heroin, and you said, Mick seemed to like one side of me being a junkie, the one that kept me from interfering in day-to-day business. And you say that after you kicked, you wanted a more active say in what the band mm-hmm. did, but apparently uh, Mick Jagger didn't really want you to have one. Do I read that right?
1: Yeah, he got used to holding the reins, and uh, and that became, that was a bit of a shock to me at the time, but I got to live with it. And anyway, we, you know, actually what happened is that we ended up sharing the reins again. But um, at the time, yeah, that did uh, shock me, uh, or disappointed me, to say, I mean, shock, I'm beyond, you know. But, uh, and I'd leave rid of that, quite honestly. It was, uh, it was a bit of a surprise to me at the time. Uh, and also, but it gave me more of an insight into Mick himself, you know. I said, hey, man, you know, all right, go for it, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's only rock and roll, honey.
0: So just one more question about this, which is when you were performing on stage together during this period of Great Friction... Do you feel it on stage? Did you try to prevent the audience nah, from feeling that friction? Yeah, this
1: is a bunch of guys that have been together for yonks. You know, I mean, you don't carry stuff like this on the stage. These are things that just happen and you deal with them and you get it over with, you know, forget about it. It's, uh, I mean, this is not some angst or a big deal, you know? you know. Of course, guys have fights, brothers have fights all the time. That's what it's all about. It's... Uh, you know, to pick one thing out and say, like, oh, it's a festering wound, what rubbish. No. You know, we're brothers. We get along, and we fight sometimes. And, uh, uh, I don't think I can express it any better than that.
0: So I'm going to play Beast of Burden. Do you want to say anything about writing it, or what you're playing on it?
1: No, I loved it. It's another one that came very natural. Sitting around with Mick, and, uh, here's one. And, uh, Mick, see, I write songs for Mick to sing. You know, that's what I do. I mean, you don't get Midnight Ramblers out of nowhere. You don't get Give Me Shelters out of nowhere. I'm writing because I say, man, I know this guy can handle this, and nobody will ever be able to handle it any other way. What I do is write songs for Mick to sing, and if he picks up on it, baby, we got. You know, if he doesn't, I just let it sit on the shelf.
0: What are the qualities in his voice and in his personality that you feel you're, you're writing for? an
1: outstanding for? performer. Hey, you're talking about a, a mixture of James Brown and Maria Callas. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. That's good. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, 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 and to have to work with such an outsized uh, personality ego and say, hey, whatever it takes, it's there. And you've got to, you know, you got to go for it. And sometimes it doesn't work, and a lot of times it does. And so you just keep on pushing, you know.
0: Well, thank you so much for talking with us. It's really been a pleasure. And, um, um, you know, all the best to you. Thank you very hey, much. Hey,
1: Terry, thanks very much. Good try, honey. <laughs>
0: My interview with Keith Richards was recorded in 2010 after the publication of his autobiography, Life. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll listen back to my interview with another great rock guitarist, Brian May, a founding member of the band Queen. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Let's continue our series of music interviews from our archive with Brian May, a founding member of the band Queen and its lead guitarist. He also wrote one of Queen's most famous songs, which has become a stadium anthem, We Will Rock You. That's not the band Queen. It's THE Queen, Queen Elizabeth. As part of her recent platinum jubilee, she made a video of her tapping her spoon on a teacup to Queen's famous rhythm. Then the band Queen performed a concert outside Buckingham Palace to a huge crowd. When they played We Will Rock You, the Royal Marine drummers kicked it off. We're about to hear the story behind We Will Rock You from Brian May. His life has taken some surprising turns. A few years ago, he submitted his doctoral dissertation in astrophysics on the subject, A Survey of Radial Velocities in the Zodiacal Dust Cloud. He's now Dr. May. In 2007, he was awarded an honorary fellowship at Liverpool John Moores University in England. When I spoke with May in 2010, we talked about the band, its lead singer Freddie Mercury, who died in 1991, and the music.
1: A big disgrace, waving your banner all over the place. We will, we will rock you. Sing it out. We will, we will rock you. Buddy, an
0: old man, That's Queen's man, We Will Rock You, which is written by my guest, uh, Brian May, who was the lead guitarist for the band. Um, so what? What inspired that song? I mean, it's been played at so many sports stadiums mm. over the decades. Were you thinking of it as a sports anthem? Because it almost sounds like uh, an old-school cheerleader cheer, you know, yeah, because of that, that stump-stump-clap thing mm. and because it's a yeah. chant. Um, yeah, that's
2: right. Well, the stump-stump-clap thing, yeah, people think it was always there, but actually... It wasn't. And I, I don't know how it got into my head. All I can tell you is we played a gig um, sort of middle of our career in a place called Bingley Hall near Birmingham. Now, Birmingham is the sort of home of heavy metal, as you probably know, you know, Sabbath and Slade and people come from there. Um, and it was a great night. People just the, the, the audience were just responding hugely. And they were singing along with everything we did. Now, in the beginning, we didn't relate to that. We were the kind of band who liked to be listened to and taken seriously, and all that stuff. You know, so people singing along wasn't part of our agenda. Having having said that, and then having experienced this wave of participation of the audience, in particularly in that gig in Birmingham, we almost to a man, sort of reassessed our situation. I remember talking to Freddie about it and saying, look, you know, obviously we can no longer fight this. This has to become something which is part of our show and we have to embrace it and the fact that people want to participate and really everything becomes a two-way process now and we sort of looked at each other and went hmm how interesting (laughs) and he went away that night and to the best of my knowledge wrote we are the champions with that in mind i went away and woke up the next morning with this (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> In my mind, somehow, because I was thinking to myself, what what could you give an audience that they could do while they're standing there and they're all crushed together? They can stamp and they can clap and they can sing some kind of chant. So for some reason, it just came straight into my head that we will rock you and to me it was a kind of uniting thing it was a, an expression of strength
0: so um how did you record the stomp stomp clap so it would sound grand and reverberating as opposed to um three people for four people mm-hmm. stomping their feet and clapping
2: well, I'm a physicist, you see. <laughs> <laughs> so I had this idea if we did it enough times and we didn't use any reverb or anything, um, that I could build a sound which would work. We were very lucky. We were working in an old disused church in North London and it already had a nice sound, not an echoey sound, but a nice big uh, crisp sound to it, and there were some old boards lying around i don 't know what they were, but they just seemed ideal to stamp on, so we kind of piled them up and started stamping and They sounded great anyway. Um, but being a physicist, I thought, well, supposing there were a thousand people doing this, what would be happening And I thought, well, you would be hearing them them stamping. you would also be hearing a little bit of a um, uh, an, an effect which is due to the the distance that they are from you, so I, I put lots of individual uh, repeats on them, not an echo, but a a single repeat, and at varying distances, and the distances were all prime numbers. Now, much later on, people designed a machine to do this, and I think it was called prime time or something, but that's what we did. As we recorded each track, we put a a delay of a certain length on it, and none of the delays were sort of harmonically related. So what you get is there's no echo on it whatsoever, but the the claps sound as though they're, they're spread around the stereo, but they're also kind of spread as regards distance from you so you just feel like you're in the middle of a large number of people stamping on boards and clapping that's and amazing and also singing
0: now here's another really interesting thing to me about we will rock you it's it's the most famous song that you've written mm. It's a largely a cappella song. You come in for your guitar solo at the very end. So, until like the very, very end, like you're not even (laughs) playing on it. And it's just kind of amazing that you, as the guitarist, would write a song that you're barely featured on.
2: Well, I'm featured stamping and clapping. Well, singing, yes. You know, and I'm featured singing. And you're singing, very so. good at that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Well, we're all featured. The guitar solo, yeah, I didn't want it to be standard. I didn't want it to be like, oh, here's a guitar solo, and then we sing another verse. I wanted it to be something stark and different. Um, so it was very deliberate that I left the guitar solo to the end. Um, just because that was a final statement and a different statement taking it off in a completely different direction it changes key into that piece too you know so it's it's, it's a whole different kind of ship it was not a standard pop song
0: okay so let's just hear the end of We Will Rock You and we'll hear that guitar solo <laughs> okay <laughs> here it is we- So that's the end of "We Will Rock You," written by my guest, uh, guitarist and singer and songwriter Brian May, who w- was one of the founding members of, of Queen. So, mm-hmm. uh, I should com- can I comment on the end of that? Yeah, please.
2: <laughs> Interesting that you play the end of the. Um Of the song, you can hear the guitar waiting in the wings. That was—you can hear this little feedback note. So Mm -hmm. the guitar is present, although it's not taking centre stage all through the last choruses, and then finally it bursts upon the scene. And you notice Freddie goes all right, which means he's kind of handing over to the guitar. And we're in a different universe once the once the guitar starts. And that was the intention. And it's very sort of informal. Uh, And you may notice there's a lot of things to notice. You may notice that the last piece the very last little riffs are repeated and they're not just repeated by me playing them again they're repeated by cutting the tape and uh, splicing it on again and again so and that's deliberate too it's a way of getting a sort of uh, a thing that makes you sit up towards the end and then it stops there is nothing after it which I really enjoy (laughs) there's no big ending it just stops and leaves you in midair, thinking well what happened there
0: My guest is Brian May, a co-founder and the lead guitarist of the band Queen. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. My guest is Brian May, a co-founder of the band Queen and its lead guitarist. The lead singer, Freddie Mercury, died in 1991. Mercury was very theatrical in his performances and songwriting. One of the most theatrical and unconventional songs Mercury wrote for Queen was Bohemian Rhapsody. How did he demo the song for you before we, uh, uh, the band started performing it?
2: He sat down at the piano and... And, and he said, and, and here's a bit where everything stops and there's an acapella bit and then we come back in again. He had it all mapped out. Um, and that's the way it was done. The backing track was piano, bass and drums. And I was sitting in the studio... And it sounded great, it sounded intriguing and crisp and lively and uh challenging and then, as the the days went on and the weeks went on, we started overdubbing all the uh the different vocal parts, and as you probably know, you know there's many of us on there. we would do each part a number of times until it was right and then go to another part and and multi-track everything. In those days, you're working on 24-track tape, so you run out of tracks quite quickly. So when you've put down, say, half a dozen tracks, you have to bounce them, you have to combine them into one track and then move on, which is a dicey process because you're losing information at that point. You're also losing generations. And we did it so often on Bohemian Rhapsody um, that the legend says, and it's true, (laughs) that the tape wore out. We suddenly realized we were losing top on the vocals. They were getting a bit dull. And we held the tape up to the light, and you could see through it. So there was hardly any oxide left on it. So at that point, we swiftly had to make a copy and carry on. Um, So it was a, a very different way of recording to the way you would do it now, because there was no going back.
0: No, you mentioned that this started as you know piano and then piano bass and drums but you do have a guitar solo a very well known one. Oh, yeah, well, that's one. added after. Yes. Yeah, and and it kind of bridges two sections of the song. So here's Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody with my guest Brian May on guitar and also doing some of the voices.
1: See a little silhouette of a man. Scaramouche, scaramouche, will you do the bandango? Thunderbolt and lightning, very, very frightening! Galileo, 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 bigam, magnifico! I'm just a poor boy and nobody loves me. He's just a poor boy from a poor family, sparing his life from this monstrosity. Easy, come go. Will you let me go?
0: So that's Queen's go. Bohemian Rhapsody let let with uh featuring my guest Brian May on guitar. Um, so let me just play you one thing that I'm sure you're familiar with. Here it comes.
2: I think we'll go with a little Bohemian Rhapsody, gentlemen. Good call. The delightful Wayne's World. Yes, yes Mike Myers <laughs>
0: for the movie Wayne's yeah, well, World.
2: I, I have to thank Mike Myers for introducing us to a whole new generation at that time. It was amazing what it did. What you did know, it do
0: for for Queen? Oh,
2: it completely translated us to the to the new generation. And uh, Freddie was already not well by that time, but I took it round to him. Mike, Mike Myers phoned me up and sent me the copy and said you know will you make sure Freddie hears it you know could you and I said yeah so I took it round to him and um, and Freddie loved it he laughed and thought it was great and he went actually what, what he said was slightly unprintable but you can bleep it if you like <laughs> um, he said you know we we had a strange thing about america because america is where we grew up you know and it really made us as a group all that touring we used to tour every year about nine months and most of it was in the states in in those early days so it really formed us as a band and we absolutely had a love affair with america there came a point when it all kind of went wrong in america and we were like the biggest group in the world every place except the states And um, I don't need to go into it, you know, the reasons or whatever. It doesn't really matter. But it was very difficult for us to sort of get back. And there's a whole kind of gap in Queen history um, if you view it from America. And Freddie was very aware of that. And we never really came back and toured the way we should have done. Uh, You know, every place else in the world we played football stadiums, but it never happened in the States. And Freddie, when I played him this thing, said... um, (laughs) <laughs> he said, "You know, it might do for us what, uh, what nothing else would do," um, and he was dead right. Um, you know, it's amazing that, that even the fact that Freddie died didn't make that much of a difference, <laughs> but the fact that Wayne's World um, put it in their film did make a difference. And I suppose the quote that I'm that I'm steering clear of is that Freddie, at one point, said to me, "You know, I suppose I'll have to f- die before we ever get big in America again." Um, oh. And it's a strange quote, um, but it, it it sort of came true in in a very strange way. But Wayne's World was was the vehicle through which young people discovered Queen, you know, a whole new set of young people, and it was it was great for us, you know, and, and I guess still is.
0: Have you have you heard the Muppets version <laughs> <laughs> B- yes, of *The and Rhapsody*? Yes, of course, of
2: course, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's well, really can't...
0: fun. Can I can I play that for our listeners?
2: Yeah, you can. Well, we had, hear it. We, we had to have heard it because it's, it's us on the record. You know, they, they asked us if they could do it and they said, look, we can sing this and we can perform it, but we can't really play it. So can we use your actual tracks? So oh, I see. Generally, I see. We say, generally, we don't let anybody do that. But in this case, because it's the Venerable Muppets, we said, yes, we, we, we'll, we'll do that with you. So, yes, we, we produced it with them.
0: It's so much fun. So look, here's here's part of it.
1: I see a little silhouetto of a clan. Scaramouche, Scaramouche, will you do the Fandango? Back up on the very, very frightening me. Galileo, Galileo, Galileo Figaro. I'm just
0: a poor boy, nobody loves me.
1: He's just a poor boy from a poor family. Sparing his life from his smart
0: Easy come, easy go, will you let me go?
1: ma na na Let me throw! Oh. ma na na they will not let you throw! Let me blow! ma na na they will not let you blow! Let me jump! Do not like let your j- jokes! Let me jump! Do not like let your jokes! J- let me jump! <laughs> <Let me joke. laughs> no, 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 no! It's for
0: That's the Muppets version of Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. We'll talk more with Queen's lead guitarist, Brian May, after a break. This is Fresh Air. So, um, let me ask you about the name of the band, Queen. How did you feel about giving it that name? Freddie Mercury was, was either gay or, or bisexual. I'm not sure how he would have described himself, but he didn't really talk about that He would to have my said, knowledge. I'm
2: gay as a daffodil, darling.
0: Would he have said that?
2: <laughs> he did say that.
0: In, would he have said that in public?
2: He did say that in public. Freddie was not one to mince his words.
0: <laughs> so, so, but, but um, the the name of the band. We're How
2: do I feel about... Ah oh, well, Terry, this is such a long way. You know? But this is
0: also the real... Like, there's so many homophobic hard rock fans. There were in the 70s and 80s.
2: How do they feel about Freddie? Well, you know, it, it's strange. I think it was a sort of an undiscussed thing for for such a long time, you know, and really, you know, the truth of the matter is nobody should care. Why should anybody care what sort of sexual persuasion people have? You know, he never hid the fact that he was... um he was turned on by men instead of by women. But strange enough, I don't think it was always the case because I used to, you know, in the early days, we used to share rooms. So I know who Freddie slept with in the early days and they weren't men. <laughs> so, um, so, But I think it, it sort of gradually changed and I have no idea how these things work. But um, it wasn't really anybody's business but his. But I remember doing a promo tour for this song that we did which was called i want to break free now we made a video for that which was a pastiche of uh an english soap called coronation street and we dressed up as the characters in that soap and they were female characters so we're dressing up as as girls as women and we had a fantastic laugh doing it it was hilarious to do it and uh all around the world, people laughed, and they got the joke, and they, they sort of understood it. I remember being on the promo tour in the Midwest of America, and people's faces turning ashen, and they, they would say, no, we can't play this. We can't possibly play this. You know, it looks homosexual. And I went, so? <laughs> <laughs> and, but it was a huge deal, and I know that it, it really damaged our sort of whole uh, relationship with certainly radio in this country and probably the public oh, as really? well. Oh, Really? Uh, and that, and that's probably one of the reasons why this sort of hole developed uh, between us and, and the States, which was really a tragedy because so many of our hits would have, been, would have fitted very well into the life of the States, but we didn't really get back in there until The Show Must Go On and These Are The Days of Our Lives. And even those weren't the hits that they were around the rest of the world. These were some sort of number one records around every civilized country.
0: Let me get to some um, more recent developments uh, in, in mm. your life. Uh, um, just a, a few years ago, you got your PhD in a subject that you had been pursuing before Queen, and that's astrophysics. You have an astrophysics right. book that you co-wrote uh, yep. recently. and um, um, It's called
2: Bang, the yeah. Complete History of the Universe.
0: So it's interesting for me to think about you going back to the university. Uh, after you'd become such a, a, a star, of course, when you're getting your PhD, it's not like you're sitting in a large lecture class with people. But um. well, it, basically,
2: it is. You know, yeah, I didn't do that many lectures, but basically, you're you're abandoning your uh, status outside and you're going back and you're being a student. It was tough. You're having to be very much subservient to the system again. You know, and, and you forget how hard that is after you've left school and university. You know, to go back into that system where you're ju- you're constantly judged and um, you're, you're assessed as as you go along, um, and you, you do a piece of work which you're proud of, and then somebody goes, well, yeah, but can you go back and do it again and do this and this and this? It, it was tough, I'd say. But I I didn't want to be treated any different from any other student. I wanted this PhD to be real, and it was. You know, they didn't make it easy on me, uh, and I never wanted that. But it was worth it. I'm I'm happy that I got the PhD.
0: You, you wrote your thesis on a survey of radical velocities in the zodiacal dust cloud, I don't really yeah, know radio, what any of that valve. means. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's a survey of radial velocities in in the zodiacal. Oh, dust radial! I,
0: I wrote it as radical velocities. I still don't know it what could it could be radical.
2: <laughs> wait,
0: wait, can you give a very lay person's description of what you were studying in that? Of what you were? Yes, I can.
2: Yeah. I'm just. It, it's a study of dust. As simple as that, it's dust, in this case, in the solar system. So we're actually surrounded by it. The Earth moves through a cloud of dust constantly, and a lot of it comes down to Earth. Um, And my experiment was was to try and find out the motions of that dust, trying to figure out where it's going, what it's doing, where it came from, and what it means in terms of the creation of the solar system. Um, The way I studied them was through Doppler shifts. And a Doppler shift is, is a shift of frequency, that you experience due to motion the best way the best analogy you can give is a police siren if you're listening to a police car coming towards you, it goes dee 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 but as it goes past you, it goes dee 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 dee, 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 dee. It goes down, no, and that's, that's true, a Doppler shift. Yeah, that that's because the, the, the waves are stretching out as this police car passes you, and it, and it, it changes from coming towards you to going away from you. Now the same kind of thing happens with light. So I was looking at Doppler shifts in light due to the motions of the dust. So from that you can infer how they how they how they're moving.
0: So yeah. So what were the larger implications of what you were
2: looking at? Ha ha! It's a good question. Um, The larger implications are: where did it come from, and was it part of the creation of the universe, or is it being created now? The dust. Um, The the dust. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and in fact, all of the above is true. You know, a certain amount of dust is created in every event. In, in the universe and, and particularly in supernovae, uh, a lot of dust is put out. And we human beings and all animals and all plants and everything on the earth are made of the dust that has come out of supernovae. Now, that's not something that I discovered, but that's, that's a fact. Uh, so when Joni Mitchell said, we are stardust, we are golden, mm. she was right. We are stardust, and I find that quite an amazing thing to think about. The material of our body did come from the insides of stars. It was made in the insides of stars.
0: Well, Brian May, it's been such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for talking with Thank us. Thank you. It's really a pleasure, really appreciate Terry. it. Brian May is a founding member of the band Queen and its lead guitarist. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, as we continue our week-long series featuring some of our favorite music interviews from the Archive, We'll hear several interviews I recorded over the years with the late Charlie Hayden. He's one of the most important bass players in jazz history. He got his start when he was a little child, singing on his family's country music radio show. He became famous as a member of the original Ornette Coleman Quartet, which led a musical revolution in the late 50s and early 60s. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham with additional engineering today from Al Banks. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Crenzo, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Bordenado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross.